Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Everett Phillips, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Alvin J. Henry about their new book, Queer, uh, Black Queer Flesh, Rejecting Subjectivity in the African American Novel. Dr. Alvin Henry, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Excited to have you here as we were just sort of talking about our our conversation about sort of doing the podcast on this book goes back to sort of last uh, October. So I'm glad that we were able to to find the time. Um, So I wonder if you could just begin the interview just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, definitely. Um, So I was originally raised in Texas um, by a single immigrant mother. Uh, So I was really interested in, or I was raised with this idea of being a racial minority, a sexual minority, and just being out of place all the time. Um, so I, that's kind of a lingering intellectual question. It's like, what does it mean to be a multiple minority? Uh, and so I went to undergrad first um, and did engineering at I don't know why. Um, And then I went to graduate school at Berkeley. um, And that's where I I really met my mentors. um, Abdul John Muhammad um, was my advisor, uh, Derek Scott. And then later on, Rod Ferguson um, and and Amber Mooser helped really uh, shape uh, my intellectual trajectories. Awesome. Awesome. Well, for this specific project, how, how did you come to this project? I think it originated when I was reading The uh, Souls of Black Folk uh, by W.E.B. Du Bois, and there he theorized uh, the idea of double consciousness. And that just really stuck with me, um, this idea of being multiple, um, as I mentioned before, like growing up, and I was like, okay, I get this. Um, But what does it actually mean to have either two psyches or three, I think he theorizes it basically as three parts, and not existing in harmony, but all battling and really unhappy, yet existing simultaneously with each other. Uh, And so he also talked about the veil in that that book. Um, And he he narrates all these wonderful chapters of life under the veil. Like, so when you take away the veil, what do you see? Um, It's all hidden in plain sight. And so I wanted to know um, you know, Fred Moten eventually theorizes this as the undercomment, but I wanted to figure out like, what is black queer life under the veil look like? How can we get there? Um, how did uh, queer African-Americans undo double consciousness? It's a project that Du Bois himself 
kind of think solved in that text um, forever. But I wanted to figure out how 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 did people do it, um, and I started seeing this in literature. Wonderful. And so can you explain the the concept of Black queer flesh uh, that you use in the work and how it sort of extends the concept of sort of Black flesh itself? Yes. So Black um, queer flesh is a matrix um, of Black queer life that can emerge once double consciousness and its apparatuses um, are removed from the Black queer body. And so it's this essentially this undercommons uh, life once you remove the veil and double consciousness. But I was trying to figure out how do you get there? Uh, it's just not a, you just don't snap your fingers and it happens. And, and so I was inspired um, after reading, obviously, Hortense Spiller's work um, of theorizing black flesh, um, as well as how Amber Mooser theorizes it more recently. Um, and how this idea of the body is stripped of identities and subjectivities and is reduced to a state of flesh. Um, and flesh, um, in, in their theorizations, can't be signified, um, isn't legible, can't represent all of the pain of being flesh, otherwise it would give it power um, and language. And so um, as flesh is slowly then, as Hortense Spiller says, or describes, it's given form again through anti-black racism, um, misogynistic power systems. Um, and so we get it mostly um, through controlling stereotypes, which she starts her article out with. Um, so it's she looks at how we resist and can contest and negotiate all of these identities that are layered on top of black flesh, um, largely given to, to black women. And so what my research is trying to do is what happens when Black queer authors disidentify with this process of flesh making? So instead of it being a violent process done to you, what happens if you do it to yourself? Um, and how do you strip away all those identities and get to queer Black flesh rather than a site of just pain, just horror? Um, and what would that look like? Um, and how do you, I found this by, um, looking at people rejecting control controlling stereotypes rejecting like in james baldwin his protagonists always just die um and so it's like how do you actually get there um and immerse themselves in a black in black queer flesh um and so instead of relying on subjectivity or identity or this idea of wanting to reclaim a unified bounded self um the self that's so valorized in much of black studies uh, I found that individuals or characters could imagine themselves not through the prism of subjectivity or as subjects, but rather people who've reclaimed this process of black bear flesh. So taking spillers, disidentifying with it. Um, and here, black queer flesh, I'm theorizing it as uh, kind of a rhizomatic structure of fleshy queer bodies and histories um, that have amalgamated over time. And so people exist in in an undifferentiated space, but also very highly differentiated because you have your histories um, and such, but they're freely circulating. Um, and so I think this idea of Black queer flesh is largely unsignified because language would appropriate it. And I can talk about that with um, Nell Larson's treatment of it um, at the end of passing. Uh, she refuses signification. Um, but so I think for, 
for my text, um, I've tried to locate what might be under the veil uh, for Du Bois without double consciousness. What does this Black queer life look like? And so um, that's kind of how I, I captured the idea of Black queer flesh. Wonderful. Um, and so central to part of this idea, um, I'm just going to ask a question. What What is Billings Roman? <laughs> yes. So I, I am a, a trained as a literary scholar in ethics studies. So the Bildungsroman is a genre of the novel that is, most people um, describe it as a coming of age novel or the young adult novel that like a, a Harry Potter book or something. Um, so, but it's more accurately translated as a novel of self-formation. So all about crafting the self um, through overcoming trials and tribulations, bad decisions, external decisions, um, class disadvantages, uh, racism, sexism, transphobia, et cetera. All of these structures of power working on you and you navigating around them. Um, and then by the end of the novel, I'm um, in this genre, you integrate into society, usually through marriage, getting a profession, um, getting an inheritance, if you're lucky, um, in some texts. And so everyone at, in African-American texts, um, for example, they always find the quote, correct place. Um, so depending on you know, what that might be. So we could see in Toni Morrison's beloved Denver, for example, um, she has all these traumas with with beloved and with setha and she ends up integrating back into society into the town by dating right she takes in this normative path um and she becomes a normative subject by the end of the text um rejecting all of what happened to setha and beloved and so the same thing with janie and their eyes are watching god you know she goes through all these marriages all these men tries to figure out what happens but by the end of the text she's this round subject this fully developed subject um that that we get to see so one of these things um that all these texts including um i'll throw in slave narratives as the nonfiction version of the builders roman is that they want us to negotiate subjectivity and craft uh an even stronger and more complex and rich self that can thrive in the face of anti-Black racism. And if you're a literature person, you'll know that the Billings Roman is the genre of Black literature, right? So pretty much any book you throw out, it's going to be this type of text. Um, and so it's all about showing how people have tried to negotiate with self-possession, self-determination, and agency, like kind of key tropes in Black studies. Um, and the Billings Roman allows that to happen because it shows a character trying to gain agency, trying to define themselves, trying to make their own choices. Um, and so in my book, I'm looking at what happens if we reread all these novels that we think are Billings Roman um, as not, but rather disidentify with this whole process of self-formation and people who have rejected subjectivity, so they're not on that course. So how do we unleash queer black flesh tell that story um, through these novels instead. Awesome. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the organization of the book. Um, so you state in your introduction that the book is sort of uh, grouped into three intellectual clusters. Um, could you explain what these three intellectual clusters are um, and why you've sort of organized your book in this way? Yeah, uh, so I've tried to I'm a fan of close reading, so I like to go slow and methodically through text to show um, how one would 
get rid of subjectivity. Uh, so uh, one editor mentioned that I should have just started with chapter five. Uh, what does it look like? You just state that black queer flesh exists, show us it operating in, in the world. And so I was like, that's one approach, but I, I, it's not, I wanted to emphasize it's not an easy process. You just don't snap your fingers and be like, oh, I've thrown away subjectivity. I'm like, that's just not, <laughs> like no text documents it as such. Um, so the first cluster of the book um, traces um, black queer characters who discover black queer flesh um, and glimpse, just take little glimpses of it as a way to rupture their subjectivities. Um, but they encounter all kinds of consequences to rejecting subjectivity, right? Um, that's just a normal thing. If you're not that, then it, you're highly abnormal, you're queer, you're non-normative, and you're punished. So I look at a cluster of texts um, in the early part of the 20th century where they try to get moved towards there, but then they stop and they pull back and um, it just doesn't work. Um, but then the second cluster is looking at canonical texts in the field where they, the authors actually go that next step and they actually have the full abnegation of subjectivity. And so this is Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, Nell Larson's Passing, um, and Richard Wright, um, a number of his texts. And then the final section is authors who've actually already have, just start with characters as embodying black queer flesh. There's no subjectivity, it's all gone. Um, and narrating what that life might look like. Um, and so it's it's a, I think it's a fun trajectory. Um, and I could talk about what was supposed to be in chapter five in the last section, but I didn't get copyright permissions. No problem. Yeah, no, I, I think the way that you've organized the book is wonderful, actually. And I, I would disagree with the editor that said to start with chapter five. Um, so let's start with you know, chapter one then. Um, so as you said, it sort of looks at these novels that sort of flirt with this uh, sub-abnegation uh, only to sort of fall back into this normative self uh, formation. Uh, can you take us through these novels and sort of how they sort of almost get to the cusp of what it is that you're talking about and then sort of maybe why they fall back? Yeah, I so I look at um, three novels in this section, uh, Nella Larson's Quicksand, Jesse Redmond Fawcett's uh, Plum Bum and James Weldon Johnson's Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man. Um, and so these all I examine in, in this chapter, what happens when Black Queer Flesh makes a temporary escape into consciousness, which starts fizzling into, into reality. Um, and so they rupture subjectivity and the characters register this. Um, and so I call when Black queer flesh ruptures subjectivity, moments of racial anxiety. So in all these texts, there's different forms of, you know, bodily justiciations, um, kind of annoyance. Helga Crane, for example, flees to another city. She just can't handle it. Um, or you get another lover. It just depends on, on the text. But everyone, every time they encounter this racial anxiety, they have to placate it somehow by returning to the normal um, and the comfort of normality. Um, and so they're all trying to tr trying to craft a legitimate um, and thriving subjectivity in these texts, but at the same time, rejecting that. Um, and so, for example, Angela Mur Murray in Plum Bomb, she wants to become the best possible subject ever, right? She like falls on she falls hard for respectability politics, 
and she finds that blackness isn't sufficient for allowing for self-possession and self-determination. So she starts racially passing. Um, and so she seeks an education. She follows a traditional building from my past. She seeks husbands, she seeks beauty. Um, and all of these are what I call false pleasure, um, this normative stuff, um, which I theorize is surplus jouissance. It's like a form of pleasure that's actually false, but you think it's it's actually true pleasure. Um, and these are, in, for Angela's case, every time she feels black queer flesh bubbling up, she returns, she tamps it down. Um, and the same thing with Helga Crane um, in Nella Lars's Quicksand. She starts embracing life's um, beyond subjectivity and her normative identities. But every time she does this, um, her, it, it doesn't work for her because she's like starts dating more men. She moves to a new city. She gets an education. Um, she wears beautiful clothes. It's like all these normative things that bring false pleasure. She uses to to plug the hole of uh, black queer flesh emerging. So everything is all about being very normal, but in this contested way that these authors are showing. It's like it's not really normal because they're doing it on purpose. So. These texts, um, we often read the events as like setbacks for them instead of, you know, on their journey of integration into society. Um, and we're really rooting for them. These texts, like you want them to be successful. You want them to be happy. You want them to be good subjects. Um, but again, this is the false promise um, in an anti-Black world. It's like no matter how these characters shape their subjectivities, they must also constitute themselves through anti-black tools and ideologies which is subjectivity so it's like no matter what you do it's always just a subversion of it but it's still it's still that so in this chapter i try to set out to show show the power of why subjectivity is so alluring um, because it actually feels good to be quote normal right like as a marginalized subject whenever i'm i find myself in normal situations um it's like wow to fit in with everyone is kind of, it's kind of nice and it puts you at ease. I can see why people like this, um, but it's just a false promise. Um, and so it's just a guise um, for people. Uh, and so it's in these novels, so they can't ever go that last step. So you'll see them self-abnegating temporarily, but the pleasures are normality, usually marriage and all of them uh, bring it back to closure um, or, people flee or just disappear in the case of um, the autobiography of an ex-colored man. He just blends in. Um, yeah. So those texts are starting to do the work, but all, all return to normality. And so in, in chapter two, you actually look at Nella Larson's passing. Uh, and you say that this work creates the genre of the novel of self-abnegation and Black queer flesh. So how does Larson sort of achieve this? Yeah, this is one of my favorite novels of all time because she just rocks it. Um, right, so she ends quicksand um, with Helga Crane fully embracing heteronormativity um, and Black womanhood based on this idea of subjectivity. And her life, right, is just utterly destroyed. She's in bed, just giving birth to child after child. She's just like, her brain is turned to mush. She doesn't have any more thoughts. It's just, it's just horrible. Um, and this is all because she embraced the normal um, when she had all these opportunities for queer 
for queer desires to emerge. So Larson, I I feel like, you know, she wrote um, Passing just a year later, right? Like as soon as she was done with Quicksand, she's like, oh my God, I want to say that she like knew that she made a mistake. Um, and it's just like, I came so close, but I couldn't do it. Um, so in chapter two, I look at uh, Larson's uh, I want to say her correcting of quicksand, um, but she looks at characters who successfully throw off their subjectivities. So this is this is the first text I could locate um, that this actually happened. Um, I went back to to stuff in the 19th century, and but I couldn't find any anything. Um, so I think this is the first text, and this is also the emergence of like lesbian as an identity in the 20s. So I, I think it all works. Um, but if readers can find something earlier, I'd be happy to, to, to go back. But I think that Nell Larson um, is the first person who embraces this idea of self-abnegation. So as ever, hopefully everyone has read this um, book, but it's you know two, two childhood friends reunite after one um, passes for a white, um, and then they, they meet up again, um, I think in the early 30s. Um, and they be, their friendship is restored. Um, and so part of this book, the fun of it is the idea of misreading each other um, and the idea of messing with time um, to do that misreading. So I draw upon Theodore Adorno's concept of mimicry in this text or in this chapter. So for him, he postulates that you don't just copy someone. Um, that's another form of domination. But instead, you mimic them by taking some of their strengths and reinterpreting it for yourself. Um, and so it's not appropriating, but it's like a very honorable, or it's like honoring that idea. And so I see Irene and Claire mimicking each other in this way, uh, based largely on the fantasies of each other. So they need to misread each other in order for this to work. Um, so as readers might know, Claire Kendry is referred to constantly in the text. Claire Kendry did X. It's never just Claire did X. It's Claire Kendry, um, or you know, Claire Kendry's like beautiful red lips or her stunning eyes, right? Or some body part um, is doing something. Um, and so Irene keeps this younger Claire, who she had a crush on, um, alive and thriving, even though they're in their thirties now. Um, and so Irene believes. Um, I argue that Claire is not actually dominated by race and that she's the first black woman who has escaped domination, right? And this is her fantasy. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not true, but this is Irene's um, idea. And so she then models herself after this state of non-domination, um, which is so like empowering for her. She's never seen a black person who hasn't been dominated by race um, or a woman by sexism and such. So she's super excited. Um, and over the course of the novel, we see Irene mimicking Claire's, um, what she believes is Claire's non-domination, right? Acting as if um, race wasn't a factor that dominated and constructed her. Um, and for that, she then extends that to Claire's other identities um, as like, reckless and again these are her fantasies of claire as being reckless as a mother not even being a mother um, and so she throws off her identities um irene herself as like a wife that one's 
that was pretty obvious in the text as a heterosexual lover. Like she's just like, I'm done with that. Um, she also rejects the idea of being a patient person as a racially uplifted person as proper. Um, and then over the course of the novel, she even rejects the idea of being a mother, um, which always scandalizes my students when I when I teach this text. But we see that she over she becomes undominated by subjectivity itself um, altogether, rather than just avoiding racial formation. So Irene is able to use that mimicry and that power to to actually get rid of thing, identities. Um, and it's not an easy process. And again, I like my slow, close readings. Irene, you know, sometimes like goes back to subjectivity in the text, like, you know, like halfway through, she's like close to disintegrating completely, but then she like goes back to being a, a good wife um, and a host. And so, and then she has that fantasy about Claire and her husband, but so she returns to heterosexuality for a little bit. Uh, so it's a lot of the text, the chapter is just being really slow and methodical to show how those identities are thrown off and all the work that it takes to get rid of identities and to surpass surplus jouissance. It's not an easy process. Um, and so by the end of the novel, both she and Claire have dismantled their identities um, and enter into a state of black queer flesh. And I think the the end, the you know, the Claire's death scene really drives us home, um, or it can illustrate this point is, so when Irene comes, when Claire, Claire's husband comes into the room and then, you know, Claire dies, either being pushed or suicide, whatever it is, um, I, I want readers to pay attention to how Irene doesn't want Claire re-dominated because now all of a sudden, if Bellu comes in and racializes her as a black woman, her fantasy will break and Claire will be dominated. So whatever happens, she pushes her, they both jump. Um, it's, it's kind of moot, but she doesn't want Claire racialized because that would undo um, black queer flesh for her, in her eyes. Um, and so you can see that scene. It's, it's a beautiful scene where she just cannot have Claire um, made as a black woman. Yeah. Um, and so then we see, so she unfortunately dies. So queer black flesh just falls out the window. Uh, but Irene, um, in if you read the text, she doesn't speak anymore. So she, she herself is queer black flesh at this moment. Um, and she refuses to speak. She refuses to be narrated. Um, and everyone else is doing stuff around her. The cops are there, her husband, everyone's just like in a, in, um, in chaos. But she goes into this descent, it says, and you know, it says like, if, I don't know if it's a thousand years or a hundred years, or it felt like she went into darkness for centuries. But it's like, for me, that's the moment where Nell Larson is saying, yes, she has entered queer black flesh and I'm not going to narrate any more of Irene because that would be doing the same thing um, that of re-signifying Claire, like Bella would do, would also be saying, what is black queer flesh? I'm going to give it language. And Larson, I don't think had, uh, she didn't have the tools to, or the novel short, um, but <laughs> she didn't want to narrate what black queer flesh was. Uh, that just wasn't her project. She just wanted to show how to successfully um, queer the journey of self-formation and make it the journey of self-abnegation. So I think that this is the first text where we actually see this. 
Wonderful. Um, and so in chapter three, then, you look at one of my favorite novels, uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, um, and you you make this interesting argument that the novel has been misread, um, and that also it previews sort of life as Black queer flesh. And so I wonder, could you just explain these arguments? I thought they were wonderful and brilliant, and I would love for you just, just to explain a little bit more about this. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's also one of my favorite novels. Um, uh, and so I think uh, Passing and Invisible Man are my two favorites. <laughs> um, but this this text has been so important to Black studies. Um, it just, right, there's everything in it. Um, and when you combine it with Ellison's photography, which is recently being published, um, it's all in the Library of Congress if you want to see it, but there's some of it's been published recently. But if you look at the text, it's actually a text about Black disability. And right, like, so if you look at, at the Battle Royale has metaphorical disabilities all over the place. We have disabled veterans. We have infirmity all over the place. Um, in the drafts, Mary's like a hundred and something years old and she's had um, cancer and right, like every, Everyone, the founder has no genitals. Like he's right. There's all kinds of disability in this text. Like there's on, the only person in the published version that doesn't, that's African-American that doesn't have a disability um, is Bledsoe. And even in the drafts, Bledsoe is queer, <laughs> uh, but that was taken out. Um, so every single African-American character of significance is, is disabled. Um, and including the hero. So Invisible Man is something that we, if we historically contextualize him, is a punk. Um, and this is a younger gay man um, who is under the, I don't know, to, to, under, he, he relates to older, older, older gay men that provide support of some sort, either financially or jobs or, you know, just supports them. And so these two threads have just been completely overlooked um, when we read the text. Like, and if you historically just, you know, put on your history lenses, that you know, it's just like, oh, wow, they're all, that's all there. Um, and so one, one example is like Todd Clifton, his initial entry into the text is this vacillation between really soft objects, really feminine objects, and then hard objects and masculine objects, um, you know, like the easy code. And yeah. it's the switch between both of them. And that's exactly what a punk is. <laughs> like, it's just like the definition of a punk. So, you know, Ralph Allison is just like, here's a punk. I'm sorry if you missed it. Um, and so you see this happen over and over again um, in the archives, the, the deleted chapters. Um, uh, Invisible Man's girlfriend is Chloe, and she's like, she tells Mary, she's like, I think he's gay. <laughs> and so even in the in the art archived versions, he's just openly, you know, people are like, he's gay. <laughs> and so and in the original hospital scene, Invisible Man, like, has all the coding and all the language of gay discourses of being in the life. It's just, it's just all there. Um, you just have to read it properly. Um, so I... Oh, yes. So those are some things that just, if you know those, it really transforms how we understand the book. Because Ellison, I'm arguing, is just writing a book about the Black, queer, disabled under comments. Um, and so it's 
This is on the surface once you have these historical insights. Um, and he's refusing Booker T. Washington completely because, um, and large strains of black studies, is because all of those require an able body, right? And so people that um, are even, that have any sort of disability, can't work, can't, can't be out in public, because um, back in the day you were unsightly and you had to be removed from public and stuff if you had a, disability, a visible disability. Um, so you couldn't actually participate in black studies or black life um, and black identity. So this is one thing that I think Ellison taps into is just like, I can start with a group of people who don't have subjectivity because they're not allowed to. Um, and so they formed um, as, pe as people like um, have theorized in disability studies, like there's no reason someone that's blind or someone that has like a mental disability um, or cognitive impairment, they're, they're not aligned, but we, you know, we've grouped them together on this umbrella of um, dis disabled. So Ellison's like, okay, I have this group of people that are artificially constructed um, and yet have created a community. So let me like tap into that. Uh, and so I think that Ellison shows Invisible Man, um, he needs to actually embrace his own punk disability in order to join this already pre-existing black queer flesh that's just in the novel, that's everywhere, but he refuses to because he retains his subjectivity um, or he wants to. And so throughout the text, there's instances starting with the battle royale of metaphorical disability. There's also just like outright queerness of erections and you know invisible man paying attention to <laughs> these you know glistening bodies with erections rather than the naked girl um, and so or dancer and so it's like from the very beginning we have this queerness um and blackness and disability all there um and you know readers can go back and think like oh wow like they're everyone is disabled um and they're all teaching invisible man how to actually embrace his disability and join them <laughs> they're like we have a community of black queer flesh come on over um and so he yeah so that just happens in pretty much every scene um from like lucius brockway they become friends and it's like it's one of his first forms of acceptance and it's just like everywhere um and then one one scene that sticks out for me is like um the arena speech where you have him descending into you know the hole um but it's just you know the basement of the arena he encounters uh a box, an African-American boxer who was blinded or made blind in a fight there, a fixed fight. You have him encounter a syphilitic beggar, someone diseased and like literally unsightly. Um, and then in the speech, he starts talking about metaphorical dis blindness. And he has this, this wonderful line where he gets like really, um, gets the audience charged up by talking about how two blind men um, should join together. All African-Americans are like, two blind men should join forces um, and see what they can do. And it's like, okay, you, you've just announced Queer Black Flash and you've told this whole audience to do it. Um, but then as soon as he comes back in off the stage, you know, they discipline him back into subjectivity and like, you need to be this type of leader. Um, and so this text is so fun for me because um, it, there's just it reclaims and recenters black queer disability um, as this 
already thriving form, um, an example of Black Queer Flesh, uh, but also showing how Invisible Man and um, punks can actually join this um, and get rid of dis get rid of their subjectivities. Um, and so the text also shows him getting rid of subjectivities, you know, towards the end of the novel, right? Yeah. He's like struggling with it and reject, you know, refusing. But by the end, he like literally burns his subjectivities um, to the ground. Um, and um, the other part of your question was like, how do we, how do we know that Ellison's already writing Black Queer Flesh? It's, I think for the prologue and epilogue are set after he's already burned his identities. So one way to think about it is, what do we actually know about Invisible Man in the prologue? We almost know nothing about him. We don't know what he desires. We don't know what he wants, his emotions, his ambitions. Like there is no subject there. It is just kind of a narrative of things that happened, but there's no subject as we understand it. And it's only us that demand it and want that type of subject so we can make it legible. Uh, and so, you know, people, lots of people have written about, you know, does he emerge from underground? And it's like, yes, he, you want him to because you think he's a subject. Um, and that's the trajectory of a narrative. But if you read it for black queerness and black disability, um, the text takes on a different shape completely. And so I think for Ellison, he was so just attuned to black queer flesh and black disability that he just writes that largely on the face of the novel, but over historical time, we have not read it correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And so chapter four was a little bit surprising to me, and I think a little bit surprising to you also, as you sort of point out in the in the introduction. Um, so you bring in Richard Wright into the conversation. Um, and I would I wonder, can, can you tell us how and why you do this? I think it makes sense ultimately when you read the book. Um, but like I said, initially, I was a little bit surprised that, that Richard Wright was sort of being brought into this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think that Richard Wright, um, so my advisor, Jewel John Muhammad, is like one of the leading scholars of Wright. Um, so I took a whole class on Richard Wright. Um, and I was just like so struck about, you know, the phases of Wright's aesthetic and philosophical development that um, I was like, why did he return to protest fiction at the end of his life? And one of the things I, well, I'll go back to um, Native Son, right? That is the traditional building for Mon, where he is just like layered, right? Everyone is trying to make Bigger Thomas into something, right? So at one point, there's like a famous scene where, I don't know, there's like 10 people in this tiny jail cell um, that are all trying to give him identities, right? Like his mother, his brother, like, I don't, Mr. Dalton, I think might be there, <laughs> like the police, there's like everyone, Max, like everyone is there to try to tell him he needs to be this type of black man. Um, and they're all different. And it's like, it, this is like the, just the layering on of the Bildungsroman and like subjectivity. Um, and Bigger Thomas, unfortunately, it, it doesn't work out well for him. Um, and he succumbs to it. It's kind of like a, a Nell Larson quicksand. So you can see some hints of right trying to reject it but he he's writing more about just you know the the downfall of subjectivity if we subscribe to it um and then he goes into existentialism and and has that long um, journey but in his last um two books which was a trilogy um uh it was or supposed to be a trilogy uh he wrote about a bisexual character 
an African-American bisexual character um, in the South, you know, in 1950, or he's writing in 58. Um, so this is after, like way after, it's almost the exact same style as Native Son. Um, so it's like, why is he like kind of returning to this aesthetic? And I argue that Wright is just like, okay, you know, he's friends, he's best buddies with Ellison. He's like, all right, Ellison just like one up to me. Um, I'm reading Noel Larson. Um, I'm hanging out with James Baldwin um, and people over in France. And he's like, I'm just going to blatantly say um, what this process of self-abnegation is. Like, I'm just going to be done with modernist aesthetics um, and any kind of flirting or kind of, you know, tiptoeing around self-abnegation. And in these texts, he just puts up front um, self-abnegation. It's like, this is your goal and there's no hiding, there's no nothing. Um, and so he wants to show and highlight how the carceral state, because uh, it's novels, very much about the police um, interventions and just like interference in black lives. So he's like, this is what the police will do to you, regardless if you are a good subject, bad subject, any type of subject. Um, they're just, he just makes it overt that subjectivity is a form of policing. Right? It's detrimental to you, to your life. Um, and uh, right, Ellison, you have to kind of read between the lines and stuff like that. This is like subjectivity equals policing, right? Um, and so he shows how to actually, that you have to self-abnegate in order to survive in the world, that this is the only way for Black queer people to live in an anti-Black world. You cannot play by their rules. Um, he makes it really political that Black queer flesh is a way of resisting the entire world um, and racism. And it's not gonna change it necessarily, but it's a way to just like stop participating um, with with the, the perpetrators. And so he shows that Fishbelly um, rejects his subjectivity very much like um, Larson and um, Ellison, but here he goes through all the different types of normative and even deviant masculinities that are available. So uh, heterosexual ones usually. Um, so he gets rid of like even white masculinity, um, different forms of black masculinity um, from father, his father, his friends, his older peers, like all kinds of black masculinity he works through and says like, okay, these don't work, these don't work. And the only one he likes is by a, the queer boy in the character. Um, and he's like, oh, I need to embrace this black queerness. Um, the other guy's gay in the, in the text and Fishbelly is bisexual. So he's like, how do I actually do this. Um, and it's largely actually in prison. So it's a kind of a transformational moment for Fishbelly, the protagonist of this text, to actually get rid of his subjectivities while he's in jail. He's just sitting there and he's like, okay. He, and he reflects on how do I get rid of the subjectivity? It's, it's failed me. <laughs> I've tried to do it, um, but I've always returned, returned to it and it's ended me in jail, literally. Um, and so he he does this um, uh, through a variety of, things, of ways, um, but then, and you know, his mother is disappointed because she can't read him anymore um, at the end, um, and people don't understand him at all, and he becomes completely illegible because he's now black queer flesh. Um, and so the novel ends kind of at this point, him fleeing, uh, uh, fleeing home and going to, to Paris, like right. Uh, and then the second, um, book is about it starts actually narrated 
completely with the character of black queer flesh. So there's no more subjectivity. It's all black queer flesh. And I had that whole chapter written, um, but the right estate unfortunately refused um, refused rights for me to publish it. Um, so, well, that's that's a, that's a shame. Um, so, chapter five, I think you had said um, that there was a way that you had written it, um, that you were hoping that it sort of could be written that way. So, uh, I had the question written, but I, I, I would love to hear from you, sort of, how did you initially sort of uh, imagine this chapter, and then sort of what is the chapter uh, in its actuality sort of within this work? Yeah, so, the, so, chapter five is like the third cluster of the book, um, where it's like, okay, now that we've shown or not we, but these authors have shown how to self-abnegate through various um, different identities. Um, how, what does it look like afterwards? Okay, so now you've got rid of subjectivity. Well, okay, what is that? Um, and so originally chapter five was looking at the sequel to um, The Long Dream, which is called, or is called Island of Hallucination. And it's in the Beinecke Library at Yale just sitting there for anyone to read. Um, and so in that text, Fishbelly just starts off performing Black Queer Flesh. So instead of being able to, so now he's completely in this undercommons, he's under the veil, he has complete access to it, as well as Sadia Hartman's characters. Um, and I can talk about that in a second. Um, what does it look like? How do you live it then? It's just like, okay, it's this messy flesh. Um, you know, Spillers doesn't talk about how to live it. It's just, you know, screams and horror. So how do you actually, what is it um, exactly now? And so for Richard Wright, he um, he draws a lot on uh, the idea of improvisation. Um, and I borrow from Fred Moten's ideas of improvisation. So Black Queer Flesh is just an amalgamation of all the different queer histories in the past and whatever they were called, people were called queer people were called in the past, kind of all kind of just mushed together and mingling, um, you know, in big, big, messy um, queer party. And part of it is in order for us to actually perform an identity, because you have to have a character right, and we interact with other people. Uh, so Wright shows us that uh, his character Fishbelly um, perform, has all kinds of different elements of Black Queer Flesh come together. So there's a call put out. So very much call and response tradition. So a call is put out that I need to like interact with the world. Um, so can queer Black Flesh come together? And so it's whoever, whatever histories are around, come together, assemble, improvise an identity um, that could be performed and projected. And this is a temporary performance of identity. And, you know, you can interact with the the normative world through language and then it dissolves or self-abnegates again back into black queer flesh and so and then queer black flesh itself is augmented or changed because of that interaction but so that's the identity you see right writing um which is really incredible um if you're able to read the text because it's it's hard um one of the things Wright does beautifully is he makes fish belly a spy and a proto-spy in the text. And so he's constantly changing his identity because he's spying, but you, so he like doubles, you know, and he, he sneaks it in that I, this character is never the same because he's always 
calling forth different aspects of, or he doesn't call forth, but queer black flesh assembles on its own to perform an improvisation that's different every time. And so you see this inability to have a stable character, not because they're, you know, inconsistent, but because they don't have subjectivity and they're just improvising identity all the time or subjectivity all the time. Um, and it's something I call subjects without subjectivity. It's just, it has the form of a subject, but there's no subjectivity here. It's just a perform a quick performance. Um, and so in that text, you see uh, Fishbelly actually live queer black flesh and you get him, you get an interaction with um, uh, a James Baldwin character, uh, mechanical in the text. It's, it's barely failed <laughs> um, that that's James Baldwin. Uh, and so you can see in that text, James Baldwin's character, you know, mechanical slash James Baldwin struggles to embody queer black flesh and is so dedicated to subjectivity. And this is why I don't include James Baldwin. Everyone always asks me like, why is James Baldwin not in here? And I'm like, it's because he subscribes to subjectivity in all of his texts, right? He he subscribes to them so much that his characters literally die because they cannot think beyond subjectivity. Um, and so, uh, so anyways, so Wright in this text tries to form a friendship or his character tries to form a friendship with Fish, with, um, with James Baldwin um, in order to teach him like um, Nell Larson did with Claire and Irene of how to self-abnegate. And so he tries to teach that other character how to do it. Um, so you see this like queer community happening and this extension of queer black flesh. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that character also as all of James Baldwin's characters do, he commits, he dies um, by committing suicide. Um, and so, so, anyways, so that text was really powerful for me because I was like not expecting Richard Wright. Like, you know, I typically think of him as super macho, right? <laughs> and, and straight, but he's here, he's writing about a bisexual character that's just queer black flesh all over the place. Um, and I'm really sad that we don't get to read it. Um, but to for Cynthia Hartman though, um, so I was lucky enough that her book had just come out. So I was like, oh my God, like, this is amazing. Let me, let me include this. I mean, this is why, you know, there's a huge gap of like 60 or 70 years um, between my texts. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be, uh, it was supposed to be bounded. Um, but um, so in Sadia Hartman's text, she is, I, I don't even know how to describe Sadia Hartman. She's so amazing um, because she, what she has done is she has, and again, she's like a real person, not a character, but like, I'm just going to say this as if I knew what she was doing. But anyway, so I'm just being a literary critic at this point and treating her as an author. But like, I feel that in um, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Hartman herself um, actually descended into Black queer flesh. Um, herself, maybe themselves, I'm not sure what to describe her as, but like she enters queer black flesh and she pulls out these histories for us. So oftentimes people critique her work for, you know, what a, a historian has actual historical records and such, like you can go narrate Mabel's life through her diaries and entries and Mabel Hampton's one of her characters, um, or she's a real person, but one of the people. And so it's like, no, Hartman is actually showing us this amalgamation of queer black flesh 
as a different way of being. And she's not narrating subject, she's narrating flesh. And so what, it, and it's not black flesh, she's narrating queer black flesh. Um, so it's like, she's gone in and not reimagined histories, but she's asked this amalgamation of queer black history to tell us like, who knows Mabel, right? Like, and, and to kind of give us these improvisations um, of who Mabel was. And you can kind of see that as she writes the text where there's, it's not necessarily linear. Um, she's, I don't think she's being like, you know, stylistically, aesthetically trying to be um, interesting, but it's more just improvisations. Like Richard Wright's second book, it's like, it's changing because every time she consults, um, I think she calls them the chorus, is yeah. constantly shouting to her, right? Queer Black Flesh is shouting to her and like cheering her on and saying like, oh, we're going to give it to you this way this time. Um, and so part of the beauty of that text is it's largely just queer black or parts of it are queer black flesh being narrated um, in this beautiful way um, where she's actually going, Hartman is going down into flesh, queer black flesh itself and coming back and trying to retell those stories. You know, and the chorus is cheering her on oftentimes or correcting her or adding their own interpretations because it's not just, you know, her ability to narrate, but all of flesh. Um, and so I think that text is a great example of 20th century, 21st century versions of queer black flesh being animated and given life in text. Totally. Uh, so what sort of audience did you imagine for this work? Audience, I think at the start of the project, you know, as all graduate students, you want like Hortense, your heroes, like Hortense Spillers and Cydia Hartman and Fred Moten to read your book. Um, so, you know, I think that's the, the same for all of us. Um, but as time went along, I was working um, on this book as a postdoc at Middlebury College. I realized I wanted the book to be assigned to undergrad, upper division undergraduates um, as they in Black Studies courses. So I tried to make each of the chap, well, besides chapter one, all of the rest of them portable. So if you were teaching Nell Larson's Passing, um, or I guess the recent Netflix adaptation, um, you could just assign that chapter. And I kind of explain enough the background, you know, for students to get it. Um, and the same for Ellison. It's like, if you want to teach this in a disability studies class, because this truly is a canonical text for disability studies. And even, you know, that field has neglected this text um, for various reasons. Um, that you could just assign them. So I wanted, I really came to see, like I wanted upper division undergraduates to reach the, to, to see these texts. Um, and it's gone, gone to more and more conferences. Um, like I went to the Asian American studies conference so last month and people there were reading my book because in ethnic studies, um, everyone's reading other people's theoretical works and paradigms because I want this idea of, liberal humanism's notion of the subject and subjectivity to be really challenged by everyone, right? It's a power structure that we've all subscribed to in ethnic studies, regardless of our field. Um, and it's like, why are we all like participating in this and reproducing it? It's like, this is just not a, it's, it, you know, it's a power structure that we're reproducing that oppresses us. And it's like, why on earth will we continue it? Um, so my audience is expanded um, to just everyone in ethnic studies, people in women's studies um, and queer studies, because it's like, let's let's really challenge how we use the word subject. Like, 
you can pick up any scholarly article that almost likely use the word subject or subjectivity, like, I don't know, 10 times in an article. And it's like, let's break free of this. And I, I'm assuming that's what you want sort of readers to take away from the work. Is there anything else that you sort of want them to take away after reading this book? I, I, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's one of the things is like, there's all their, their alternative possibilities in life, but uh, for black studies itself, I want us to rethink like, look, we are, we are ableist essentially in the ideas of what it means to be a black subject um, or blackness itself. So like coming to terms with that is like, we have to do that um, as well as right. Settler colonialism, like approaches are like, look, we are reproducing some of those ideologies too. And it's like, we have to stop because subjectivity of what was imposed on indigenous people here, right? Imposed on African-Americans and blacks and enslaved people when they, or I don't know, during the, the journey over, it's like all of these things were imposed, but we're reproducing it. It's like, we have to like, I we just have to really, all the precepts in black studies for the most part are based on subjectivity. Right, and it's like from Du Boisian threads, um, like you know, they're all in that lineage. So we have to, I think, rethink about what it means to be Black Studies because so much of this is foundational to subjectivity. Absolutely. Uh, well, Dr. Henry, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, so I'll ask the uh, dreaded final question here: uh, What are you working on now? I am actually um, working on um, my next book, uh, well, two books, but the one that's most relevant is I'm looking at how subjectivity is recalibrated um, in, on a global scale between uh, immigrants in, the, in global Asia, um, particularly in, in um, Asian American culture. But looking at how this idea of subjectivity is being like tackled and that process of coming to terms with it uh, by looking at how Asian Americans have responded, queer Asian Americans have responded by building different forms of community um, through this idea of saying we need to always have second chances um, because we've been racialized as Asian American versus whatever, like you might be Chinese American or something, but then you're racialized as Asian American on top of it. Um, so playing with this idea of second chances as a way to smuggle in this idea that we shouldn't be beholden to subjectivity either. That sounds wonderful. Um, I'll definitely look out for that. Um, well, Dr. Henry, uh, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope everyone goes out and reads this work. I think personally it's, it's wonderful. Um, and take care. Thank you so much.